Here we are in the shed again. It's Talk Shop, Writers Talking Shop in the original Portland. My guest today, Alex Irvine, author of four novels, a ton of short stories and novellas, over a dozen novelizations. He's written video games. He teaches fiction writing and game writing at USM. Uh, you know, here's a guy who knows how to get her done. Uh, he's also a one-time Jeopardy champion who got totally screwed the second time he was on the show. I blame Trebek. Smart, funny, industrious, down-to-earth writer Alex Irvine. The guy makes a point to schedule hours every day for reading in the same way that uh, people schedule their time at Planet Fitness. So before I get to Al, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in my world. I got two projects that I'm straddling right now, a memoir and a novel, both uh, in the early stages. And, you know, I decided to kind of mix it up. Instead of being secretive and precious about my early stage work, and I, I've done that in the past because, you know, it's like when you have an incredible dream and and then you start talking about it and it sounds silly or psychotic. I used to just not want to take any air out of my balloon. But this time around, I, I decided to um, to actually just write down a projected synopsis of both projects, you know, like a 300-word paragraph about each and I sent them to those paragraphs to my agent, and um, and I showed it to my wife, showed them to my wife, and um, you know I'll see what they have to say. The verdict is not yet in because I want to choose which one to to focus on. I'll probably continue to take notes on the other, but just need to figure out which one to lock in on, and uh, and I'm just not quite sure. Questions or comments can be sent to lr at lewisrobinson.com. You know, I love mail. Thanks, as always, to my sound engineer, Sean Mushaw, and to Aaron McCullough, a.k.a. Them Anatomies, for the music. And thanks to Alex Irvine for spending some time with me in the shed. Here he is. If you and Alex Trebek were in a lifeboat... <laughs> what, what, what would that look like? How, how would that go? Uh, well, he'd probably talk about his dog. Uh, we heard we, you hear about his dog when you hear the show, and he, um, I don't know. That's why he liked your your Lassie story. I told that dog story, and he actually woofed, and uh, <laughs> I got like a zillion emails about that. You made Alex Trebek, Mark. It's so weird. Yeah, it's so it's weird. Funny. Um, but yeah, what 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 else? What else can you tell me about him? Well, I I mean, everyone thinks he's a dick. I mean, I don't know if that's accurate or not. Yeah, but like he, I didn't what, see did that. You, did you didn't um, see that? Okay. No, the uh, it, it struck me that he's um, he's pretty much the same off camera as he is on, but he's also in front of an audience even when he's off camera because there's a studio audience. And he, uh, if he doesn't have to do audio pickups and stuff like that, he comes down and uh, takes questions from the audience. And his answers are always really self-deprecating and witty, and and um, oh, he does. So he just roams around and and, yeah. and what kinds of questions do people ask him? So there's this one section of the audience where it's family members and friends of contestants. Yeah, and um, there's a kid, ten or eleven years old, sitting there with his hand up through several of these Q and A sessions, and Trebek hadn't called on him, and um, then finally he did, and um, the kid says, "Have you ever been a contestant on the show?" And Trebek says, no, you know, in that Canadian way. And uh, he says, uh, can you guess why not? <laughs> and right away, without missing a beat, the kid says, because you're not smart enough. That's awesome. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> and awesome. uh, and Trebek cracked up. I yeah. mean, it, so, uh, and, it, and it didn't seem like he was performing. I mean, you know, he's skilled, so he can manage yeah. his appearance however yeah. he wants. But, but uh, but he thought, and then he, he explained to the kid, he said, well, no, if I was if I was on the show, I wouldn't be hosting the show, and then someone yeah. else would take my job. And it, so it was... Uh, it was those kind of moments. There were a lot of them, um, just he's, in the one day that I was real. there. He yeah. seemed real, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, and what, what surprised you about about being a contestant on, on the show? Like, what, what were you not prepared for? Well, there were a couple of things. One is, uh, I, I was real nervous. I mean, I got on the plane saying, if I go out there and win a game, I'll come home happy. You know, but there's so many variables. You don't know, yeah, you know, yeah. and so... I'm in the green room, and they and they don't like any of my shirts, and so I have to keep changing my shirt. And, and Wait, what did they not like about your shirts? Um, well, they they send you this contestant packet that's like a thousand pages long, and and it tells you all the stuff you can and can't do, and and then there's a section on your clothing, and they say, don't uh, uh, don't wear shirts that have these kind of patterns. 
So I didn't bring any of those shirts, but then they didn't like any of the shirts that I had uh-huh. because uh, the camera guys were complaining that the patterns were strobing, and, and even though okay. it was like a real subtle... Anyway, they didn't like them, so I had this one... I had like six shirts, and the only one they let me wear was this plain blue button-down that I got yeah. like Old Navy. That was my It was my backup shirt, you yeah. know, and so that's... But there the, was a vest, too, wasn't there? Didn't you wear in one, that's, 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 that's what I did. I wore a vest the first time, and then I had brought a sport coat, and I threw okay. that on for the second show. <laughs> <laughs> Mix it up. Nice. Yeah. Between shows... You you go off stage and you change your clothes and you go right back on. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Oh, because they tape uh, how many five. shows? Are, oh, right. Five in a wow, day. Okay, wow. Yeah. So you knew you knew your fate pretty soon. Second second show, you fared well, but you didn't win, right? Isn't yeah. Right? Well, yeah. so what happened was my first show was the uh, third show they taped that day. And okay. so I got to watch a couple of times. Oh, yeah, and, oh, that's good. And, and, and yeah, that was good. And oh, also, you got to watch the your competitors or, yeah. or the one guy that you. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Brandon, he won the two game. He won the first two games of the day. And um, and then they also, in the morning before they start shooting, they let you get up there and sort of stand at the podium and feel the buzzer a little bit. And and, and, and it really helps because, you know, you've been watching Jeopardy on TV your whole life and then you, like, walk out on the soundstage and, and you think, man, it's a real place. This, yeah. it, it actually exists. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so I felt better after that um, because I had this feeling like, oh, okay, I'm here, you know, yeah. and it's, it's got a floor and... Yeah. and uh, and so I watched the first two shows, and, and, and that was cool. And Brandon just destroyed people, and, and so I was, you know, nervous about that. Uh, and then the first show, I went but in then, there. But then he met the buzzsaw. Al <laughs> Irvine. Yeah. Well, nice. I, I swore to myself that I wasn't going to buzz in in that first game unless I was 100% sure of the answer. Yeah. Because I thought better to not answer than to lose money, you know? Okay. Is that um, is that conventional wisdom for Jeopardy to I think so. I didn't do a ton of studying. Yeah. Um, everybody told me you got to study. You got to study. And so but, you know. Yeah. What well, can you study exactly? I mean, isn't I, it? Kind I like of read like... some stuff about presidents and flags and rivers and yeah. things like that. For yeah. but um, but the real trick that I found, not that I did great there, but the real trick that I found was uh, was oftentimes um, the question contains the answer. You know, the, okay. the framing yeah, of yeah. the question will right. tell it, will guide you toward the answer. Yeah. That actually is what bit me in the second game, but. Um, so that first game, I, I did exactly what I had planned to do, and I only got one question wrong the whole time, and that was a daily double that I wouldn't have it wouldn't have rung in on otherwise if it had been uh, a regular question. Yeah, brutal. so so I won that game. That was fun, and then came back for the second one, and I had found the buzzer timing because the buzzer timing is like eighty percent of the game. Oh God! Um, and it's complicated. You got to find the timing. So so is there there's some delay or something, or what's the you you're supposed to. Listen to Trebek read the question, and then on the side, on the edges of the question board, there are these lights. And when he's done reading the question, one of the producers who's down in front of the audience presses a button, and that light comes on, and that's when your buzzer is live. Okay, gotcha. And if you ring in early, your buzzer locks for a quarter of a second. Okay. So you have to time it right. But the thing is that if you wait until you see the light, it's already too late because so somebody else is there. you wait until you see his finger moving towards the... Can you see well, that or no? No, you can't see that. So I... But I started to figure out that there was a certain... Like, if I press the buzzer just as Trebek was finishing the final sound and the final word of the question, yes. you know, and you just, I started to hear the rhythm a little bit. And when you find the buzzer timing, Jeopardy is the most fun thing in the world. Okay. And then the buzzer timing leaves. It's like it's like baseball, you know, like hitters. You get the timing, and then you <laughs> Wait, go into slump. Did, how did how did it leave? Yeah, I just started missing it. Okay. And uh, and and that happened. So that happened in the second game because I I started to get a little overconfident. It was weird, and I started buzzing in on things just to take chances. And then you know, at the first commercial break in the second game, I was in the red. And then after the first round, I had like a dollar. And then I relaxed. And went on this tear in, in double jeopardy, and was winning, but I hadn't doubled the the uh, the woman in second place, and so this is where that thing about the question leading you to the answer came yes. back to get me. So the final jeopardy question is the category is European art, and I thought, oh man, because the uh, the woman who was in second place, she was wearing this Monet scarf and had been talking in the <laughs> green room about how she'd gotten it at Giverny. And, and so yeah, I thought, oh no, oh, no. she's going to know this for sure because I wanted to just bet a dollar and hope everybody would lose, you yeah. know? Uh, but I couldn't do that because I was sure she was going to get the question. Yeah. So I bet the win. The question comes up and it's a quote from a from an art critic in 1890 or something like that about an artist who used swirls of impasto to create, uh, you know, the impressions of his paintings. Not the, the word impressions wasn't used, but I forget... And so I looked right at it, said, swirls of color, that's got to be Van Gogh. Yeah. But then you have 30 seconds. And so 
I started talking to myself uh, and I said, oh, wait a minute. The whole shtick with Van Gogh is that nobody, you know, nobody noticed him until well after he was mm-hmm. dead. Never sold any paintings. It can't be Van Gogh. Critics wouldn't have been talking about him. And then her scarf got in my too, head. Too clever for Jeopardy. Uh, yeah. Too I outsmarted clever. myself. And yeah. so I wrote down Monet. I got it wrong. And then the kicker was she got it wrong too. Oh. Yep. Yep. And the guy who was in third place, he ended up winning. Oh, brutal. <laughs> I know. Oh, brutal. I know. Oh, man. But it worked out okay because his story that he told at the beginning of the show was about how his first memory was of his mom tapping out the rhythm to the final Jeopardy song on his back while they watched, and his mom had just died, oh, and man. his dad was there, and so yeah, like, I, I won one. Like, yeah, this yeah, guy's, it's yeah. A happy, happy to happy to yield <laughs> for, for that. So, and do they do they cut you a check right away? What are, what's no? What's it doesn't like show up for like four months. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, you know it's coming. Yeah. But, yeah. All right, I'm either like the worst possible person to interview you or the best cuz I you know like I read I read buy out when it came out mm-hmm. and uh went to one of your events and uh really Couldn't enjoyed have done it. Couldn't it without you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, right. right. <laughs> it's a really smart book, suspenseful and, you know, Thanks. it's actually it's interesting to like think back on reading that book. It, it came out like 10 uh, 2009. Okay, two, yeah. oh, okay, not that not that long ago, but it's like it feels definitely even more prescient now yeah, in, in an some awful t- way. Yeah. I, I, uh, well, right after right after it was published, there was this big scandal of this judge in Pennsylvania who was basically selling kids to juvie halls and, and getting kickbacks for it. And, and, yeah, and, yeah. and I started to think, Yee. And then there's some, some other like side notes in the book that I just stuck in there because I thought they were neat colors. Some of those have started happening. Yeah. Like in the news a couple of weeks ago, Mark Zuckerberg is using Morgan Freeman as his house AI voice. And, you know, Whoa. in buyout, there's uh, <laughs> uh, the Kindred family has Gandalf as their house yeah, AI yeah, voice yeah. and right, Martin's right. car is John Wayne. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's amazing. And then I went and saw Rogue One and there's Grandma of Tarkin. So there are some digital recreations of actors in Rogue I One. I heard that. I heard okay. that, that it's kind of... I mean, what did you? What was your impression of it? Um, I could see why they did it, and I thought yeah. it was fine. Okay, you know, um, there was other stuff about the movie that I liked more. Like and it was the who was it? It was like the admiral or no? it was who Peter was Cushing, it? Grandma okay. Off Tarkin. Okay, and okay. then there's one more that I won't tell you about if you haven't seen okay. it. So, <laughs> okay, but so there's that, and then you know there's a subplot and buyout about the the kooky film director who does right. all the remakes of movies using only digital recreations of dead actors, and I thought. It's kind of funny to see that stuff start to happen. Start when, to happen. Yeah. And it wasn't the main point of the book, but it was just, like I said, it was just coloration. And, yeah, and, um, right. Um, so that kind of thing is fun to see. I mean, I, I'm thinking more just uh, about, like, the mercenary culture in general. You know? Yeah. And, I mean, it, if you if you wouldn't mind just describing a little bit about, for, for those folks who are listening who haven't read the book, it's about prisoners imprisoned for um, for life without parole who yeah. are granted the opportunity to to take yeah to so, be euthanized in exchange for having their beneficiaries right. uh, paid like how much millions a couple yeah of it comes to the millions so I did some calculations about yeah. how much it costs to actually keep somebody in prison in in, a, in maximum security and how long the actuaries say because your average murderer is twenty seven or twenty eight years old and you know. Maximum security prisons that they spend in California anyway, they spend more than a hundred thousand dollars a year on each prisoner. Yeah. When you add up all the various expenses and and um, it's and there are different ways to calculate it, but um, and and those costs are going through the roof. Mm. So, with prisons privatizing everywhere, um, I thought that uh, so if I was a company that own some prisons i would be looking for a way to reduce that cost yeah especially so for buyout there's a company that both owns the prisons and owns the insurance company that insures the prisons and so they come up with this scheme whereby they know how much they have to keep in a liquid reserve to satisfy federal regulators about that they're going to be able to take care of the prisoners they also know that young prisoners are a lot cheaper than old prisoners so they figure they can reduce costs by getting people to essentially to by offering buyouts of the sentences right they say it's going to cost us X million dollars to keep you fed, clothed, housed, and and treat your various illnesses for the 58 years or whatever that you will probably be here. We will offer you 30% of X. And yep. uh, and that amount is, you know, two, three, four million dollars. Yeah. And in return, you take the needle next Tuesday and you can do literally anything you want with that money. You yes. can give it to the clan or you can, you know, give it to your sister. You can build little league fields. You can do whatever. It's your yeah. money. Yeah. And so when I first had this idea, I thought, man, I don't know if that's believable. I don't know if anybody would do that. 
And then literally the next week, this article came out in Harper's about this group of uh, prisoners serving life terms in Italy. And three or four hundred of them signed a letter to Silvio Berlusconi begging him to let them be executed instead of having to serve out their, their entire life terms. Wow. In so, exchange for something or just... No, they just wanted out. Like, wow. Oh, man. Yeah. That is dark. So I thought, I, well, I accidentally might be onto something here. Yeah. You know, I surprised myself. And, and, so, uh, and, and so this arrangement, it's not only a privatization of criminal justice. It puts all these weird financial pressures on the justice system. And it also is an intrusion of market capitalization into actual human life which is something that insurance companies already sort of do. Mm. But I thought that using capital punishment to to talk about it would be a way to make it a really stark choice like yeah. you know what what is life actually worth. Yeah. It's a I mean it's a great uh it's a great concept to build a novel around. I mean I I so enjoyed Thanks. that and just imagining that. But it does feel I don't know. Somehow we just feel closer to that reality. I yeah, I, I mean, when I wrote the book, I thought, no way, you know. And then you see stuff. Yeah. Everybody wants to privatize everything, yeah. and and uh, and there's this this sort of bloodthirsty element in the culture that's really coming to the fore lately. Yeah. And, yeah. and I don't know. But so back to like why I think I may be either the worst or the best person to to interview you, and that is because I know you know I know your fiction, but I don't know much about your comic book work, and I don't know about your like game writing work, and so I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. Like I, I'd love to hear you know how you got into it, mm-hmm. and um, and then like what's happened since you've gotten yeah. into it. Yeah, well, I did it all backwards, so. Most of the people I know who got into comics got into comics by they started off doing their own comics and 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 uh, and then you know published indie comics and uh, with the goal of eventually writing Superman or, or Spider-Man or something. That's not the only way to do it, but that's how how a lot of people do it. And um, I kind of did it backwards because I was doing a reading um, for uh, the novel I wrote before Bio called The Narrows at KGB in New York and mm. and. Um, one of my friends who was there uh, was like, "Hey, I was just hanging out with uh, this editor, th- this guy who works at Marvel. It wasn't actually an editor, um, and uh, let's go meet him." So I said, "Okay." And we went across the street to this other bar, and 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 I started talking to this guy, and he said, "Hey, did you ever think about writing comics?" And I said, "Well, as a matter of fact, I did think about writing comics," yeah. and and so that went from there. Um, and in parallel with that, one of uh, before I'd even published a novel, I had worked on a couple of uh, weird game projects, alternate reality games. Then that came looping back around years later because one of the guys, this guy Mark Laidlaw, who's a game writer at Valve and wrote Half-Life and, and uh, worked on the Portal games and, and so kind of a you know, legend in the field and a great guy. He also writes science fiction stories in the, in the occasional novel and he and I have been published in some of the same magazines mm. and sort of knew each other that way. He emailed me out of the blue one day and said, hey, uh, I got a friend out here who's looking for a writer for this game, and I think it might have something to do with Marvel. And I said, you know know where to find me, you know? And and, uh, so that conversation started. That turned into this game called Avengers Alliance, which is a a Facebook game, but a real heavy story-driven Facebook game um, that ran for four and a half years. It just actually sunset this this past fall, okay, which is a long time for a Facebook game. And and so, what what is that? What is a Facebook game? Well, there, I mean, there are lots of games on Facebook. A lot of them are just sort of casual games, like hidden object games, okay. or you know, you can play Scrabble, you can play Candy Crush, you can play whatever okay. through Facebook. Um, but this game was different. It was um, kind of a fantasy, Final Fantasy style role playing game where you you make a team of three guys, and then and then the, and then there's uh, then you fight bad guys and you complete missions and, okay. and you get rewards and and so it was set in a, a version of the Marvel universe and so I so we developed this huge story and then also I would interject periodically uh, special time limited missions in the game that reflected um, comic book events that were being done or if a movie came out I would uh, I would adapt a version of the movie story into the game and have okay. that be a, and so the player is a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who is leading a team of superheroes, you know, against various bad guys and trying to save the world. Um, and I got to do that for, I mean, I worked on the game for six years by the time it was done. Um, so what is that, what does that look like? Like, what does your work on a game look like and how, how is a game written? Yeah, that's, that question has a lot of different answers depending sure. on the game because there's so many different platforms for games and so many different ways of delivering stories and, and Alliance even over the four years changed a lot and so what I was doing by the end was pretty different from what I was doing when I started. Um, but I mean what you do is you figure out what the gameplay is like and you figure out where the story fits in with the gameplay because gameplay always comes first. Um, 
And so, so what? Do, so what is that? What is that difference? What's the difference between gameplay and story? That is a vexing question. It's okay. uh, um, people are still trying to figure that out. I mean, I mean, in a big console game like an open world kind of sandbox game where you can build in essentially endless side quests and stories and things like that, that's really different because the only limitation you have there is time and imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're working in with a social game. Um, you have to you have to deliver the story in much smaller, sharper chunks and constantly reinforce what's come before, because you know a week after a story bit, only the most dedicated players will remember the last story bit. And so, you so you tell the story. It's it's kind of I felt sometimes like um, like I imagined the uh, old poets sitting around a campfire mm-hmm. used to you know they tell part of a story one night and then everybody was drunk and fell asleep and then the next mm-hmm. night they all showed up again and nobody remembered what had happened the night mm-hmm. before. So you have in, in ancient poems all these reminders that are spotted mm-hmm. in throughout. Mm-hmm. And, and so I did a lot of that. I mean, in that way, is it similar to writing uh, for a serialized TV program where mm-hmm. you where you have like a set of characters and it's episodic and you have to kind of remind folks about backstory? And I mean, Yeah, it- yeah. I think, th- I think there are some parallels because uh, by the end of the game, I think 140 characters had had dialogue oh, or wow. something like that. My master script for the game was 39,000 lines. Okay, wow. Um, by the end of it. So, so I given, had to remind myself, you know, because yeah. <laughs> I couldn't remember oh, everything. Oh, sure. Yeah. So so it would be like under these circumstances, this character would say this, or uh, is that how it works? Well, or? in okay, so I wasn't constructing those kind of dialogue trees that had conversation options the way that okay. you see in, in a console game. What it would be essentially is the, the player... The player looks at a map. There are these missions on the map. You click one of them and you start that mission, and a character pops up. And in in these what we call toast portraits, you know, a, char- a picture of a character pops up with a line of dialogue, and somebody else pops up on the other side with another line of dialogue. Okay. Deliver the story that way, and then when that's done, you click OK. The mission starts. You have the fight. Oh, so it's um, a way to kind of provide context for what the yeah. okay yeah okay. yeah you find out you, you find out what you're doing there as okay. as you're doing it so that seems more straightforward writing i mean you're yeah. you're just yeah you're telling a story in dialogue between mm-hmm. okay i gotcha yeah it, it um and and the only real trick is figuring out the right balance between story and gameplay um, yeah because you don't want too little I mean, I don't want too little, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm a writer. But developers are always nervous about there being too much, especially in a free-to-play mobile game, because the only way that the game monetizes is if people play fast and play a lot and click a lot. Okay, And gotcha. so they view story with deep suspicion because they think it's going to slow people down. And okay. They, um, so you got to find a balance, and that balance is different for every game. Um, I'm working on this Walking Dead game right now that's a, you know just a different variation of the same conversations. And it's called Road to Survival. It's actually really fun. So it's a that's a spinoff of the TV show, and it's has has that been written before, or is there a game that goes with Walking Dead? Or well, there okay. So I don't work directly with the TV show. I work okay. straight from the comics. Okay, and, gotcha. And um, which came first? The I, comics. I don't know. Okay, yeah, the comics. Yeah, okay. the show was okay. created from the comics. Okay, and has since departed from from the comic storyline in a bunch of different ways. But so what I do for Road to Survival is um, there are these there's sort of two missions a month, sort of biggish involved story events, and one of them is an adaptation of one of the comic stories to keep that overall to keep the overall story marching forward, and then there and then the other one is. Um, focused on a side character and how that character gets integrated into the main story, um, the backstory of that character, what he or she was doing um, before coming into the main flow of, of, of the narrative. Okay. Um, so it's kind of fun because I get to work with the comic stories, but then I get to also look at the comic stories and say, man, I'm interested in you know this, this hole here because yeah. I'm curious about what's happening sure. there. And I get to tell some of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's neat. Okay, so you were saying that you got into it backwards, which yeah. which just means that you didn't start writing your own comics, that you you were kind of invited into the world yeah. as a novelist. Yeah. yeah, and Marvel and DC have started doing more of that. Okay. Um, and they, and they, they really began to do that, I think, in the late 90s. Okay. Um, and I benefited from it. I mean, you see him do the same the same thing now. Like Ta-Nehisi Coates is writing Black Panther, and, right, and, right. and there are lots of other uh, other novelists who are now working in comics because of that. They started to look outside their own industry for, to to bring other writers in. Yep. And then from that, you know, it's just word of mouth. One job, somebody sees it and they think it's neat, and yeah. they uh, ask you if you want to do something else. And, yeah, yeah. And um, 
Um, and if they don't want you to do anything else, then you never hear about it. So you stay happy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As most of that work comes since you stopped teaching at, at UMaine, at Orono, or... So I, the... I left you almost six years ago because... Things were starting to roll. Is that yeah, right? I, I, I essentially did not have enough time to both do justice to the teaching and and write all the things that I wanted to write, yeah, you know, yeah, that I was yeah. that I was that I was being offered. It was a nice spot to be in, you know. Yeah. So I left. I actually just started teaching at USM this fall again because cool. they're starting a game design program, oh, and they cool. asked me if I wanted to sort of oversee the creation of it. Oh, nice. So, so, so what um, what kind of courses are you teaching? Uh, well, I'm teaching creative writing and lit courses until I get the gaming curriculum stood up, and yeah. then I'll be teaching some of those, and I assume some some English courses, creative writing yeah. courses still, yeah, yeah. but the university seems to be really behind it. And I That's think great. students are going to love it too. Yeah, so. Yeah. so I hope it works. What do you imagine that they'll, they'll learn in like a, like an entry level course? The very first course, the, like the intro I imagine is, um, is starting with the question, what is a game? You know, how do you, how, what's the difference between a game and reality mm. and working through an important distinction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but one that is more and more blurred. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things about alternate reality games is that they is that they try to blend that that distinction between the real world and the game universe, which is one of the things that makes them really fun to do. Mm. But you know, your classic games, like uh, just going all the way back to dice mm. and, sure. and and things like that. So working, so so the course would be the first course That's would great. be just yeah, yeah. yeah, a study of the principles of what makes a game a game. Yeah, yeah, and what brings people to games. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Why we like them, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, that that the risk and reward dynamic that uh, sets off the response in the lizard brain that yeah. makes you want to do it again and again yeah, and again. Yeah. And then as games evolve and get more sophisticated, how does that work? You yeah. know, and, and so that would be the first course, and then the later core courses in in the major, as I envision it, will start to be more professionally oriented because yeah. the idea is that in the fourth year, the majors will form a team that's all taken from different tracks within the game design major, and they'll make a game. That's awesome. And that's yeah, great. Their final project yeah. will be a game that they could actually go and put on iTunes. So, um, so what about your like game playing or um, or comic book reading as a kid? Like, what where, what did you? How were you introduced to that world? Well, I read lots of comics. I never really subscribed to comics, and mm. so I didn't read long series of single titles. I tended to get my comics either from my friends or you'd be at a yard sale and yeah. there'd be a stack of comics for a dollar. And, and um, so I read all kinds of stuff, mo- mostly Marvel. I was a Marvel kid. Okay. Um, so, well, and what is what is Marvel? Which Who's, who's included in that world? Uh, Doctor Strange, The Avengers, Spider-Man. That, that's, that's the core. Fantastic Four okay. of, of the... Um, so DC is is Superman who? and Wonder Woman, The Flash, okay. Green Lantern. Okay. Um, and uh, do you, are you saying those titles with so, some judgment? Do you do? You, uh, no, I I I just never connected with them okay, the same yeah. way. Well, yeah. Batman. I always love yeah. Batman. You know, I mean, it's 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 often said that uh, that Marvel was the company that brought sort of uh, real a real emotional core and sort of real angst i guess yeah to comic book storytelling in the in the early 60s when you know when when, when spider-man came yeah along. and i think there's a lot of truth to that and and so i i connected with those stories in a way that i never connected with what dc was doing at the sure, time sure. people are different that's that's yeah, cool yeah. but you know i loved spider-man and i loved dr strange and i loved daredevil and uh and so those were my those were my comics when i was yeah. a kid and then games you know D D. Yeah, was, yeah, uh, so, you know, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're I think right about the same age, and mm-hmm. yeah, I was I was into that. I think, mm, let's see, like 10, 11, 12. And it started for me because my dad played. Oh, okay, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, so my dad he he got the original D and D version. It was these it was these little parchment covered uh, these three three stapled folded books, and they came in this little white box with a set of dice. And uh, he walked into the house with that one day and said he was having some friends over, and they yeah. played. And I was like seven, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I was standing by the, awesome. by the by the dining room table, you know, and yeah. and. Uh, um, watching all my dad's friends smoke dope and play D and D, and it was, uh, and I was totally hooked. And they yeah. taught me how to play, and, yeah. and then wow, I started playing great. with them, and then I, you know, got friends together. They probably loved that 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 they could bring someone into the circle, like a yeah. like a young disciple. That's cool. That's kind of what it was, yeah. yeah. And uh, and then um, and then from D and D, I started playing all kinds of other games. I mean, I, I spent every spare dollar I had in this hobby shop called Riders Hobby Shop mm. in Ann Arbor, and it's, it's not there anymore, but. Then, you know, from D&D, I went to, uh, I used to play a lot of Traveler. It was a great science fiction game. I don't know that. And then the other TSR games, Gamma World and Boot Hill and Top Secret. And and, uh, and then 
God, what were some of the other fantasy games? Chivalry and Sorcery and Bushido. And... One of my fondest memories of playing D&D was working with those amazing books. Like yeah. Those, like the large format hardcover mm-hmm. books, like the Monster Manual and all yeah. that. So did those um, come out around the time that we were kids, or was that something that your dad would have had also? Or, no, that, no, that was... Those are technically advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. So there was uh, so so there was that first edition, and then these new volumes started coming out that expanded on it. Um, and then with those big hardcovers were AD and D. They were the, and and I got those. I think I got those in middle school. Okay, yeah. And yeah, I, I, were those great? Oh, I, I, so cool. I still have all. I of would them love and, to and see and those again. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I colored all the pictures, and yeah. and, and so yeah, those those books. I mean, it's it's an exaggeration, but not much of one to say that I am where I am right now because I played a lot of D and D when yeah, I was a kid. Sure, you know? it really did uh, condition me for uh, for a lot of the stuff I do now. You were born in Michelinia, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, and then did you live there all the way through? I know that you went mm-hmm. to Michigan. Um, yeah. So were you there like all the way through your undergrad? You yeah, we moved around some when I was a little kid, um, but by the time I was in first grade, we were in Ipsy and stayed there until I went to college. Okay. Um, and then I was in Ann Arbor for, you know, I was in college for five years and then uh, stuck around for another couple of years. And I was in Colorado for a while and came to Maine for the first time, went back to Colorado, came back to Maine. Okay. And here I am. And what, what were your parents up to when, when you were little? Well, my dad was a, uh, a truck parts salesman. And so he was, uh, he had a route that ran through sort of uh, the Detroit area mm-hmm. and, um, and and my mom had uh, different office jobs, um, a lot of the time working in medical offices. But my dad also, he was my first soccer coach. You know, he didn't know anything about soccer, but we mm. wanted to play. And so yeah. he was like, well, I guess I'll coach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and went and got a rule book to try and figure out what he was doing. And that led to refereeing. And he's, he still refs soccer games. You know? No way. Yeah. In, in yeah. Michigan. Yeah. Or is it? Yeah. 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 Uh, my mom uh, later ended up doing a lot of interior design. And, and they both just retired. So. Now I think they sit around the house trying to figure out what to do next. Yeah, and you have you have siblings. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I got a brother who's a teacher. He he still lives in Ipsy, um, like three hundred yards from my mom and dad. Yeah. Um, and uh, so yeah, and he and he was right there playing D and D too. We, uh, we, the two things that Andy and I did all the time was play D and D and play soccer. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's my childhood in a nutshell. You know. When did you start getting into like? telling stories of your own or writing stories of your own so when you dm a campaign you're doing some storytelling sure and um but it's a different kind of thing and so the first thing that i ever wrote down first piece of fiction i ever wrote down i think it was in an english class i think it was my freshman year and uh the teacher wanted us all to write a a story and so i wrote this story about this night um and this battle that took place along this river and i forget what why he had to do it or something but um it was just what was in my head and i wrote it down and she liked it and so i thought that was cool and then but the only other writing I did in high school was writing poems to impress girls, you know. And yeah. uh, what were those poems like? Oh, they were uh, heartfelt lyrics, you know. Um, Rhyming? No, no, no. Okay. I, no I, uh, like modeled I, after after who? Or well, I couldn't even answer that right yeah, now. Yeah. I mean, I because actually what they were modeled after was I had this girlfriend who wrote me a poem one time. Okay. And I was like, oh man, I guess I better do this back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I modeled the thing that I wrote on the thing that she wrote. And, and, uh, and so we had this exchange that went nice. on for a couple of years that way. And that was cool. And then in I college, mean, that kind of writing yeah. can make a big impression. Like, on, yeah. on, you know, like if, if something like that works, you're like, okay, mm-hmm. I need to keep working at this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I absolutely did. Yeah. And then in college I started to, you know, I had an idea for a book cause I always read a lot, obviously, you know? And so I thought, well, maybe I'll write a book. And, and so I, was, I had all these fits and starts, but I never really finished anything until after I was out of college. Um, and then, uh, um, I was in Colorado and I, I wrote a play cause I, I did a lot of theater in college. Mm. And then after college I did some touring stuff and some commercials and whatnot. And then kind of got to the point where I had to move to New York or LA to go any farther. And I didn't want to do that. So mm. instead I kind of chucked the whole thing and moved to Colorado, but I thought plays were interesting. And so I, I decided to try to write one and I wrote one and it was terrible, but I thought writing was what fun. Was, what was it about? I don't even remember. Yeah. Um, it was... I think it was about a, a bunch of confused college kids, you know, because yeah, yeah, sure. that's what I was. Yeah, yeah. And somebody, and I don't have, I don't have it anymore because it was in a bag that somebody stole out of my car in Denver one time, along with 
the manuscripts of the first two short stories I ever finished. Oh, brutal. Yeah. Yeah. So those are gone. But anyway, I thought writing was cool, so I thought uh, maybe I'll write some stories, and and so I started doing that. But you said you got into it by way of acting, like yeah, that, yeah. So yeah. what was the what was the acting like, and what drew you to that, and what did you like about that? Well, the same girl that wrote me that poem um, was into theater, yeah. and she said, you know, we don't have any guys. You need to come and, and do theater. And so there was a student theater group at Ipsy High. And um, so I started doing that, and I did the musical in my senior year, and then I got to college, and I was an engineering student and started off doing aerospace engineering. Um, but I did a couple of plays and pretty quickly figured out I was more interested in the plays than I was in yep. engineering. Um, because what I figured out was I, I engineering was not going to get me to space, which is what I really sure, wanted. Sure. I wanted to design spaceships and go to Mars. Yeah. Um, and when I figured out I was probably actually going to just like model airplane wings for the rest of my life, I thought, eh. Um, so I, so yeah, I ended yeah. up majoring in theater. Um, I did a ton of plays in college. And, uh, and Do you remember, uh, like, what, what was a particularly satisfying role that you, that you had that you got into? Oh, boy. Probably the most fun I ever had in a show was Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, playing Sheriff Ed Earl. And um, the woman who played Mona in that is actually in Kinky Boots on Broadway right now. No way. Yeah, Jenny Perry. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, she was the real star of the play, obviously. Um, but, uh, and a bunch of other people in, in from that show are working in Broadway or in film now, too. It was uh, one of the things about Michigan was musical theater grads from Michigan go places, mm. you know. Did you, when you were an undergrad at Michigan, did you have any awareness of their MFA program in writing, or did you, did you take classes, any, any like creative writing classes that made an impression on you, or was it, uh, was it more kind of like indirect than that? Yeah, I, um, because really they have had, that great program. Yeah, they yeah, do, which yeah. I didn't know about till I graduated, um, because I didn't take too many English classes. I yep. took the ones I had to take yep. um, to fulfill the theater major. Mm -hmm. but And then I took a science fiction course uh, because there's this guy, Eric Rabkin, there who taught a great science fiction course, mm -hmm. so I took that. But no, I didn't. Um, I wasn't connected with the, with the writing program there at all. And I took one creative writing workshop as an undergrad and failed it. Oh and, my God! Yeah. Wait, how how did that how did that happen? <laughs> well, I just didn't show up to a lot of the classes, yeah. and and uh, and she flunked me, and I had it coming. Was you know, it but... was it taught by an MFA student? Do you think? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just you just were not into it. Yeah, and plus, I mean, I was. I think what was it? There was some kind of conflict. I, I think it was work or something like that, mm -hmm. and and so I was trying to I was trying to get enough shifts a week to keep my rent paid, and and then yeah. I took this night class. And I, I always hated night classes. I don't know why I did it. Yeah. And so I just, uh, most weeks I was at work instead of instead of going to the class. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I tried to be a good member of the workshop when I was there, but yeah. I didn't do a very good job of yeah, it. Yeah. And so. You went on and got a PhD in... in yeah, in English. Grid, okay, yeah. in English. Okay. Yeah. At, at Denver, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and was that, so that was in English, not in creative writing, because don't they have a creative writing They PhD? do. And yeah. so what happened... So while I was out there, they admitted me as a, as on the academic track. They had this creative dissertation program then too, and I kept trying to get into it, and they wouldn't let me in. And so I started working on my disc. I was doing a disc on uh, on Phil Dick, and mm -hmm. uh, I got a grant to do some research. Went out and looked at his papers at Cal State Fullerton, and and started writing up all this stuff. Um, and then my wife at the time wanted to come back east, and so. Um, I had to be dynamited out of Denver, but we came back mm -hmm. east, and, and um, I was sitting there fooling around with my dissertation, and then I sold my first novel, and I thought, hey, do mm -hmm. I finish my disc or write another yeah. novel, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, of course, I wrote another novel, and... That's an obvious choice. Yeah, I, I think mean, so. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so I didn't, I didn't come back to the PhD thing until it was the spring of 2005, I guess, when I saw that Orono was hiring somebody to teach creative mm -hmm. writing. Mm -hmm. I was working at the Phoenix. I was a staff writer at the Phoenix at the time. And so uh, I emailed Naomi Jacobs, who had been my MA thesis advisor in Orono, and I said, tell me about this job. And she said, well, she seemed skeptical at first, but because she didn't know what I'd been up to since yeah. then. I said, well, I published a couple of books. You know, I, mean, I can do this. And so anyway, I interviewed, and they offered me the job, but I had to finish my PhD by September. Oh, wow. This was March. Wow. And I thought, man, there's no way I can do this Phil Dick project in six months um, yeah. I wasn't even done with the research you know yeah and so I got in touch with the people at Denver and I said so how about we do this I got this job offer to teach creative writing and what if I do a creative disc even because I yeah. you know I took some workshops while I was there and and if we fudge the coursework just a little bit you can move me into the sure and so they went along with it and so I did a creative dissertation as a short story collection um, a couple of stories I'd already written and then I wrote uh I think I wrote three new stories and then a sort of uh, apologia for how I do things yeah, as yeah. an introduction cool. thing. And yeah, 
and now I have a PhD. And what what had you done? What did you liked about the um, the MA at uh, at Orono? Like what what did you study there, and what was like what was good about that time? Those are two of my favorite years of my life so far because mm. I went up there, and I spent two years doing nothing but reading books and thinking. Yep. And drinking beer. Mm. But, you know, and so, I, I mean, I was teaching classes, and so I sort of learned how to teach up there, too. Yep. But the great thing about Orono at that time was I came in with this cohort of really cool people who all had really different ideas about what they wanted to do. And so we were always talking to each other about oh, different stuff. There's a guy into travel literature. There's this one guy who wanted to write about the Harlem Renaissance and art. There was, um, and, and you know, Buddhism and Kerouac. There was another guy doing his thesis on that. Then I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I wanted. I decided I wanted to write my MA thesis on Phil Dick, but nobody in the department knew anything about mm. it. So I went to Naomi, yeah, and I said, "So, Naomi, I want to write my my thesis on Phil Dick, and you know, you do American lit, and you've done some utopian stuff, so mm. maybe you like science fiction. So how about it?" And she said, "Well, uh, bring me some books." Yeah, and so I gave her a couple of, of Dick's novels. I could. I think I gave her Martian time slip and, and Ubik. She said, yeah, let's do it. And so uh, so she learned right along with me, you know, and I, and I did this thesis on on information theory and, and Phil Dick's 60s novels. And, and, that's cool. Uh, and she she must have been into it, like yeah. to be introduced to that. And yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. So that was Orono. There was a lot of space to do stuff like that in Orono at that time. And, and I don't know I don't know what it's like now. I mean, when I was teaching up there, the students, their interests weren't as widely divergent. I did a lot of master's theses, but uh, um, but not as many people were coming in with like these weirdo out of left field ideas that, that I, and every time somebody did, I would say, yeah, do it. Cause I wanted to see how it turned out. Yeah, and, sure. So what is the, what's the rhythm of your day? Like now, like what's a, what's a, a typical week for you? Like, I mean, you've got four kids, you're married, you've got uh, this teaching job at USM. Mm-hmm. You've got like various assignments that come in from different publishers and Marvel and and then you've got your own like fiction that you're working like how do you how do you balance it all well the ideal week is yeah that's good uh, let's start there (laughs) get up in the morning get the kids off to school and then everybody is dropped off to their various schools and daycares by eight o'clock yeah and then then I look at my email and see what's on fire and uh and you know try to do that and then in an ideal week, I take two or three hours early in the day to work on my own stuff mm. because that's, that's one of the things, maybe this is worth an extended conversation, is figuring out how to balance the licensed stuff that pays the bills and then, and then not losing mm. track of your own stuff, which I did for five or six years. Mm. And then I have, uh, you know, the, the ongoing projects that I'm still working on, you know, the, like the, the Walking Dead or an, I'm doing a novelization of the Doctor Strange movie. I'm also working on a Power Rangers novel um, for that movie that comes out in, in March. And so figuring out how long I think those are going to take and, and devoting enough time to, to keep those going. And, and by then the day's over. And if I teach, you know, then, yeah. then, uh, then the day is oriented around classes. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, and, you know, making sure that I'm keeping up on, uh, on, you know, grading and reading and things like that. Because I love teaching, but I really don't like grading. Mm, and so yeah. I, have to, I, have to, I have to block out time and just swear to myself that I can't do anything else during that time except yeah. grade or else I'll never get it done. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you have to kind of like cordon off the teaching days and just say like this is a day that's devoted to teaching yeah, pretty much yeah and yeah then, yep and then I try to do some reading at night um, because one of the things that I discovered when I when I started working a lot on on various deadlines was that I stopped reading yeah that's and then not I start good. to feel wrung out and yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and so I have to really make a point of reading yeah um, you know I schedule reading time almost like other people schedule gym time yeah and, and, that's great and. Uh, and it's and you need it, or I do anyway. You mentioned like novelization of mm-hmm. a of a movie. So how how many times have you done that, and how does that work? How do you do that? Well, uh, I think I've done fifteen, sixteen. I've done 10. wow, that's yeah. awesome. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I've done ten or eleven for Marvel, um, almost all the Marvel movies, and and uh, and like I said, now I'm working on Strange. And Is then, the expectation that you that you basically like try to as best you can in the form of a novel recreate the experience of the movie is it yeah it's really like, well the marvel faithful? yeah the um well so the marvel ones are particular because they're middle grade and so they um so mm-hmm. you have to zero in on that audience and yeah. so there's certain stuff that i cut out of the movies like the torture scenes in winter soldier and, okay, and things yeah. like that um but uh but the the other ones um they're really different like 
you know, I've done, I did uh, Pacific Rim and, and, uh, and talked to Guillermo del Toro about what he, what he couldn't get into the movie, you know, oh, and so cool. thought might be cool. So you can add book. that. And, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and he told me a couple of things that he wanted to get in the movie and couldn't. And then I said, all right, anything else? And he was like, dude, it's your book. You're the writer, write the book. Great. So I went off and wrote the book and, uh, and he was really cool. And then sometimes, um, they want you to stay a little closer, yeah. you know, like I did Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and, and they, they really wanted me to stick beat to beat mm-hmm. to the movie. And that's mm-hmm. hard when you're writing a, a novel because movies don't have nearly as much story as novels yeah, do. Yeah, right, right. Um, so, you know, what I try to do when there's not a lot of room for narrative digressions is, uh, is go in. Because one, thing's movie, one yeah. thing movies aren't very good at is getting yeah. you inside yeah. people's heads. Yeah. Or apes' heads in the case of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I did a lot of that. Um, and that was fun. It was an interesting experiment. You know, how do you, what's the consciousness of an, of an elevated ape like? Mm. You know? mm. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. And, uh, and so I tried to be very careful when I was writing stuff from the apes POV not to <laughs> uh, um, use a lot of... Because offhand, we're always using philosophical concepts and complex metaphorical formulations that they wouldn't have because mm. they don't have that experience of language yeah, the yeah. same way. And so, so that's cool. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I was trying to do with that book. And so every book can bring its own challenges that way. And that's one of the things that keeps me interested in novelizations because you can do just a boilerplate transfer of a screenplay to a novel. You know, you can do that in a couple of weeks, but it's boring, you know, and um, they're more fun when you yeah. try and figure out how do I tell this story in a way that makes it an interesting novel? The filmmakers already took care of it being an interesting movie with yeah. any luck, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but books and movies obviously do different things. And so how do I find the things that a book can do well in this story? And you've done some Star Wars um, novelization, right? Or I, I wrote a Star Wars book um, that was a casualty of uh, a bunch of stuff at, at Lucasfilm leading up to the Disney buy. Oh, um, wow. Okay, yeah, yeah. right. That's That and would be a tough time to do contract work for them. It's like, who's in yeah. charge? Kind of well, the, it, was, it was weird. They hired me in 2008, and they kept moving the book. And so I didn't actually have to write it till 2011. And oh. so I wrote it and turned it in. And then a bunch of other things had changed that sort of pulled the rug out from under the story that I had already gotten approved. Yep. And so so that book went bye-bye. But what was the – I remember you describing to me once when we were at Ruski's for a beer, you were describing to me that the, the mothership uh, book, the, the the guide to all, all things Oh, Star the holocron. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. What's it called? Holocron? Holocron. Okay. Yeah. And that just has every, it explains every character and every place. And Yeah, uh, yeah. the one I had um, was actually, a, it was a, a CD that with a FileMaker Pro file. That's, okay. that's, that's how old it was. Okay. Now I'm sure all this stuff is online on a server somewhere. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, you could you, you type into the search bar any planet, any character, any race, any artifact yeah. that has ever appeared in any Star Wars thing. And it's right there. Okay. And so how much of that did Lucas compile? Or was it just something that's that that uh, his minions like just... Yeah. Very little of it is Lucas's work, actually. Okay. Because, um, you know, there are dozens of Star Wars novels, dozens of comics. There are games. There are animations. All that stuff was in the Holocron. And Lucas yeah. only touched the six movies. Okay. The way I understand it is he wanted personal approval over... Any, any of the stuff in the expanded universe that touched on Han, Luke, and Leia. Okay, gotcha. Um, but other than that, people kind of uh, worked with uh, the editors at Del Rey and the editors at Lucasfilm. Um, and so there was this huge, huge universe of Star Wars stories yeah. that Lucas really didn't have much to do with. Okay. Um, and uh, Disney 86 a bunch of that stuff when they when they bought Lucasfilm. And although they kept... They kept some of it, and there's a character in Rogue One who's out of the expanded universe. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but the Holocron was fascinating. You just page around in it and yeah, see all this stuff. Yeah, would be fun. Yeah. So, what are you what are you excited to work on in the next couple of years? Like, what's what's uh, where are you where are your ambitions right now? So, I realized a couple of years ago that I had almost completely lost track of writing my own stuff. I was spending ninety five percent of my time writing licensed stuff, stuff for other people. Which was fun, you know, and uh, and you can tell some cool stories that way. But that wasn't what I started out wanting to do. Mm-hmm. So about two years ago, I started deliberately carving out time every day to work on my own stuff. Specifically this one book that I, I had the idea for it in like 2001, early mm-hmm. 2002. Um, and I finished a draft of that this spring and was just working oh, on it today, actually, before I came over great. here. Yeah, I finished that draft in April. I let it sit all year and then just got the manuscript out yesterday, as a matter of fact. And and so I'm hacking through that. Um, and I'm going to get it ship shape over the next month. And then 
And then also I started another book that is that may be a fantasy trilogy, which is never something I wanted to do. But I wrote this I wrote a couple of short stories six or eight years ago that were linked together and they were this they were kind of quest fantasy sort of stories, which is not which is something I always read a lot of but never mm. wrote. Yep. Um, but I had this idea, so I wrote it down. And then it kept coming back. Usually when I write something and I get done with it, I don't ever want to see it again. I don't mm. want to talk to those people. And, you know, yeah, yeah. And, um, but, this, <laughs> but this story kept popping back into my head. So I thought, well, maybe there's more there. And um, so I, I just, uh, I've been working on that. That's the, that's the sort of new thing I'm working on while I revised this, this other book. Yeah, and it feels, and, you know, a couple, of sh- <clears throat> excuse me, a couple of short stories here and there, which is something that I really stopped doing and miss. I mean, I used to, mm. I used to publish four or five short stories a year, and, mm. and now um, it had been less than one, you know. Mm. And and so, I've tried to dedicate some time to doing that as well because that's that's my first love writing wise is short stories. Yeah, yeah. Because you can get a short story right, you know. You, I mean, yes, it, that's so true. Yeah, no matter how happy you are with a novel when you're done with it, it's not right. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but you can you can finish a four or five thousand word short story, sit back and look at it and think, yeah, I I, got I, that. I, I nailed that yeah, one. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, thanks a lot for coming in. I have one one final one final question. Was there ever a point in your life when you would have um, signed on for for a trip to Mars? Like, is that uh, yeah is that something? Yeah. Oh yeah. What about now? It's tricky yeah. with uh, you know with family. It is. And um, before I had kids, I would have done it without a second thought. Yeah. I would I would have been first in line. Yeah. Now I don't think so. Yeah. You know, that's uh, I will I will watch with great interest when yeah. it happens. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and yeah. wish, <laughs> wish yeah, that yeah. that was me. Yeah. I do have hopes that that I can go to the moon because yeah. I I think that's something that could, moon yeah. tourism. I think that might happen soon enough that yeah. I'll be able to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, well, thanks, thanks again. For oh, thanks for in. having yeah. me. I enjoyed this well, a lot. Let's do it again for sure. shop episode 21 it's a wrap thanks as always to aaron mccullough aka them anatomies for the music and sean mushaw my my sound engineer and send any questions or comments to lr at lewisrobinson.com and see you around (laughs) 